Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. When the National Gallery of Art opened its doors in March 1941, the original Andrew W. Mellon gift was augmented by a collection of Italian art donated by the Samuel H. Kress Foundation. Kress was the first to offer a donation in response to Andrew Mellon's call for contributions for the new National Art Museum. For the gallery's opening, Kress gave almost 400 paintings and sculptures. Ultimately, the foundation gave the gallery a total of over 700 paintings and sculptures, in addition to over 1,300 small bronzes, medals, and plaquettes. In 2010, the Foundation awarded the gallery a grant to conduct provenance research on the entire Crest collection of paintings, distributed nationwide to regional museums and study collections in university-affiliated institutions. In this lecture, recorded on May 23, 2016, Max Koss explains that the Crest giveaway included 22 works donated to the University of Chicago, which had no significant collection of Western art, much less a museum to house it. Edward A. Mazur, professor of art history and founding director of the David and Alfred Smart Museum, secured the gift and used the boost it provided to build an exemplary teaching institution. This program is supported by the Samuel H. Kress Foundation Provenance Research Project. So today I will talk to you about um, how the Smart Museum came about, the role that the Kress Foundation and the role that the Kress Foundation played and continues to play in the success of uh, the museum. When I first accepted to talk this afternoon, um, I thought I would be giving you an insight into how the Crest Foundation, how the Crest Foundation's gift, 1973 gift of 21 artworks to the University of Chicago brought about the birth of the Smart Gallery as it was then known. Research in the archives at the university done by my colleague Nora Lambert and at the Crest Foundation, generously carried out by Chelsea Cates and Max Marmer himself, um, suggests a more nuanced story. By exploring the curious case of the smart, I aim, to, I aim to put into relief the pivotal role of the Crest Foundation in an art historical education based on an engagement with the experience of the art object and its histories. To set the stage, let me introduce you to the 1973 gift which continues to anchor the smart's collection of Renaissance and Baroque art. And you see all of it here. It consists of 15 paintings, two sculptures, and four works of applied arts. Among the paintings are works of rare subject matter, as, such as Santa Croce's King David, a work that was on loan from the Crest to the National Gallery between 1944 and 1957, where it seems to have been briefly on view. The Assumption of the Virgin, attributed to Veronese, as well as his Crucifixion, formerly attributed to Bartolomeo Bulgarini, were also on view at the National Gallery of Art before they found a home in Chicago. A personal favorite of mine is Jan Steen's Game of Skittles, a great example of Dutch Golden Age genre painting that the Crest bought in 1954. Among the works of applied arts, we find a gorgeous Murano glass bowl and the splendid reliquary, here we go, um, attributed to Antonio Gentili, commissioned in all likelihood by the only 16th century Farnese Pope, Paul III. These six works alone show the possibilities the gift offers as part of a teaching collection with its geographic and temporal range as well as its variety in media. Contested attributions such as the Veronese or Bulgarini only make it more useful as a teaching tool. How then does this gift fit into the history of the arts at the University of Chicago? The idea of an art gallery on campus with its own collection had for the longest time been opposed by university administrators and trustees and for good reason. 
Unlike other smaller cities with universities, Chicago offered one of the country's finest art museums, the Art Institute, just a short train ride away from the Hyde Park campus. Furthermore, the university was home since 1915 to the Renaissance Society, a sort of Kunsthalle, a non-collecting exhibition space for the presentation of art. Decidedly historical in its first decade, it became from the 1930s onwards an important space for the presentation of modern and contemporary art and remains so to this day. In the words of the university historian John Boyer, the Renaissance Society demonstrated that there was a substantial interest in the visual arts among faculty, but it required several decades to translate such inquired sentiments into a set of policy convictions. The idea of constructing a building specifically dedicated to the arts was first floated in 1924, and again in 1929, with a promised gift of $1 million that would also have established a collecting museum on campus. Alas, the Great Depression put a swift end to these hopes. The prevailing attitude, as already expressed in the founding of the Renaissance Society, was that art would lift and ennoble the spirits. When an art department was founded in 1924, it was squarely aimed at the practical side of art making, but did not offer opportunities for in-depth art historical research at the graduate level. An intellectual engagement with art history was not a priority. That only changed with the appointment of academic art historians such as Ulrich Middeldorf and Ludwig Bachhofer in the mid-1930s and Edgar Wind and Otto von Simson in the early 1940s. With the arrival of these German emigre scholars, the university imported German Kunstgeschichte and its professional ethos. In 1945, Middeldorf even proposed to Daniel Kettenrich, the then director of the Art Institute, to create a center for art history in downtown Chicago, bringing together the art history departments of the city to rival similar institutions in Europe, such as the Kunsthistorische Institut in Florence. The idea failed to garner support from administrators, and Middeldorf left the university in 1953 to take a position, you guessed it, in Florence at the Kunsthistorisches Institut. <laughs> it was with the arrival of a new dean of the college, Alan Simpson, in 1959, that the process that eventually led to the creation of the Cochrane Woods Art Center, Quack, as we like to call it, and the smart within it began in earnest. Simpson put forward a proposal for a new art building incorporating art, music, and theater that initially found little traction. But in March 1963, the chairman of the Department of Art, the art historian Edward A. Mazur, put forward a plan to create an art center incorporating all of the department's studio, teaching, and research func functions with space for an art library, an art museum, and the Renaissance Society. Mazur's proposal broke with the rule that the university should not develop its own permanent art museum, a rule in place to not antagonize the Art Institute and the members of its board. After some more discussion a fundraising and a fundraising campaign, the art department eventually did end up with its own building, Quack, separate from the other arts and with a professional gallery connected by a courtyard. A $1 million gift from the Smart Family Foundation in 1967 paid for the gallery's construction. David and Alfred Smart had made their money um, by publishing Esquire magazine. So here we are in 1967 with money and plans to build a museum, but without a collection to put in it. At this juncture in my talk, it should be clear that the title does not, in fact, accurately, uh, does not accurately reflect the archival findings we have made since I submitted it for the symposium. While the Crest gift, once it was made, was leveraged to plan exhibitions, special projects, etc., it did not play a decisive role in the creation of the museum, as I had first surmised. That said, 
our foray into the archives has unearthed evidence that the potential and mere idea of a gift from the Crest Foundation may have well played a role in the establishment of the Smart Museum. The evidence is in this letter from 1962, which contains following passage. Needless to say, we would be delighted if there were any paintings that we could have. As I mentioned in an earlier letter, I hope that there would be paintings on canvas, because we are certainly in no, uh, not set up here to handle paintings on panel. It was written by no other than Edward Mazur, chairman of the art department at the university, who we encountered just a moment ago when he submitted a plan to create an art center in 1963, a mere year after he penned his dismissive to the Crest Foundation. To understand the importance of this letter and what followed, we have to go back to Lawrence, Kansas, circa 1953. And here you can see views of downtown Lawrence as well as Spooner Hall, the location of the University of Kansas's art museum at the time. This is a time and place where Edward Mazur, born in 1924, gets his professional start as an art historian and curator, teaching and running the art museum in Lawrence until 1960. During the same time, from 1951 to 1960, Franklin D. Murphy, a medical doctor by training, is a chancellor of the University of Kansas, and according to a University of Kansas press release, published upon Edward Mazur's widow's death in 2008, the Mazers were close friends of Chancellor Murphy and Judith Murphy. This is, of course, the same Franklin Murphy who became a trustee of the Crest Foundation in 1954 and its president in 1963, a position he occupied until 1984. It is during these same 21 years, between 1963 and 1984, that Ed Mazer leaves his mark on the University of Chicago and the discipline of art history. In other words, the professional development of Murphy and Mazer is simultaneous and provided them with opportunities for cooperation. And their friendship continued as both moved on in their careers, as a 1964 letter from Mazer to the Foundation's Executive Vice President, Mary Davis, indicates, discussing a visit from Murphy to Chicago, Inge, Mazer's wife, and I enjoyed having Franklin as our overnight guest. The cooperation between the two men looked something like this. Early on in Murphy's tenure as Crest President and early on in Mazer's tenure at Chicago, in around 1962, Murphy invites Mazer to become a consultant to the foundation. Together with Murphy and Davis, Mazer then becomes a driving force behind the foundation's fellowship program that continues to support the study of art history in fundamental ways to this day. And here I am showing you an official letter Murphy sent to um, Mazer in October 1963, requesting a continuation of his consulting activities. In the middle, you see a uh, hypothetical budget for the distribution of funds written by Mazer for the fellowship program. And to the right, you see Mazer's handwritten notes evaluating the merit of whether or not the University of Notre Dame should receive fellowship funds. And lastly, I'm showing you a note from H.W. Janssen of New York University and textbook fame, expressing quite exuberantly his gratitude on behalf of the College Art Association of the approval of a publication grant. Um, as you can see, the amount earmarked for the College Art Association by Mesa, $20,000, is the same that Janssen mentions in his note, indicating that the draft budget would at least partially uh, executed. Lest we think that Mazur did not also provide for his own institution, here's a quote from a report he wrote in 1984 upon his retirement as Smart Museum Director. In my search for funds as consultant to the Crest Foundation, I designed its program for the support of art history in the form of subventions and fellowships, chiefly to benefit the department. 
That he always understood himself as an advocate for the arts at the University of Chicago is already clear in a letter to the press from 1961, before he became a consultant. And I show you the letter here on the left. I want to dwell on it for a moment as it tells a broader story of the role the Crest Foundation played in the dissemination of art history. If you look at the draft budget a little closer, one item in particular stands out, as it seems a biased choice. The Epstein Archive, to which Mesa wants to dedicate $20,000. Now, the Epstein Archive, still extant and housed at the University of Chicago's Regenstein Library, is a collection of 168,000 mounted photographic reproductions of works of art with a strength in the art of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and the Baroque. In the letter from 1961, Mesa asks about the possibility of updating um, the archive's collection of reproductions from works of the Crest Collection, of which the archive today has 5,000, 3,000 of which of Crest works from the National Gallery. So this clearly indicates uh, Mesa's advocacy uh, on behalf of the university at this point. Whether Mesa was able to secure these funds I was not able to establish with certainty. But what this, what this does mean is that before the smart was created and the Crest gifted 21 artworks to it, students at the University of Chicago had already access to a large number of works from the Crest collection through their photographic reproductions. While I have no time to delve deeper into this topic, and Melissa will address this later um, in more detail, it seems important to highlight it here as an instance in, of the ways in which the Crest collection was disseminated and made available. Now that we have established Mather's relationship with Murphy, they were friends, and with the Crest Foundation, let's go back to 1973, when Mather found himself in the position of having to fill a museum, for which, let us remember, he had pushed for as early as 1963, just when he became a Crest consultant. When this smart museum was finally built, the Crest had only a small number of objects left in its possession, many of which on display in their offices. As it had already finished disposing most of its art collections a decade earlier in the Great Crest giveaway in 1961. But it seemed a propitious moment as a foundation, in the words of Mary Davis, and you can see her letter here, had to get rid of objects in their offices. While we were not exactly able to establish why the foundation had to unload some of its remaining artworks, both Murphy and Davis agreed that the Smart Gallery would be a worthy recipient. It seems fair to suggest that it was Mazer's involvement with the foundation in the 1960s and his personal relationship with Murphy and his wife going back to the early 1950s that were deciding factors for this gift. As to whether forcing the foundation's hand was Mazer's plan all along, we can only speculate. But of course, nobody wants a friend's brand new museum to be empty. The works did not arrive in Chicago before some local bickering and infighting had been dealt with and some strings were pulled. Experts were summoned to judge the merit of the collection. Daniel Curtin Rich, former director of the Art Institute, was adamantly opposed, ostensibly on the grounds of what he considered the minor quality of the gift. But it may have had more to do with his disapproval of a new museum in Chicago, an attitude that had roots in the pre-war period, as I have shown in the beginning. H.W. Jansen, who we also met before, was then brought in and thought the gift a splendid idea. He may, of course, have been biased as well, ever since Mazer suggested the College Art Association should be given $20,000 for its publishing endeavors, which did happen, as we recall. The drama did not end there, however. The eventual acceptance of the gift, despite Rich's negative verdict, led Catherine Kuhn, an Art Institute curator and his long-term romantic partner, to drastically curtail a substantial promised gift of modern art to the smart. 
And here you see a letter mentioning that promised gift. So it is then that on October 23rd, 1974, the Smart Gallery opens its doors to the public as part of the newly constructed Quack that, had, that also houses the Department of Art History. Um, and here I'm showing you some of the impressions of the museum from uh, that moment and articles that appeared on the occasion of its inauguration uh, with architectural renderings uh, there and there. Um, of, an arts, of a larger arts complex that was envisioned uh, and first articulated in the 1920s, but never, in fact, um, realized. And while the patchiness and shortcomings of, it, of the collection are being noted in these articles, it is recognized from the beginning as not just an institution for the use of the campus community, but for uh, all of the city of Chicago, in fact. Um, as this installation shot indicates, the gift of the Crest Collection was prominently displayed in the large open space, which led one critic to note that it looks a bit lost in the vaulting space of the gallery. Upon entering it, the visitor would have seen a wall of Crest works with a tabernacle facing the door to your left here, um, and its carved recession into space functioning as a pull into the gallery. On the same wall, we see Bramantino's gathering of manna, and I assume its companion, the raising, his raising of Lazarus. On the far left wall, we see Luca Cambiasso's masterpiece, Madonna and Child, with St. John the Baptist and St. Benedict, paired with Santa Croce's King David. Walking further into the gallery and turning right, the two Cassoni panels depicting Daphne fleeing from Apollo on the left and Daphne found asleep by Apollo on the right would have come into view. On the right side, we also see St. Jerome from an unknown master, and on the wall to the left, Jan Steen's Game of Skittles. Fast forward to the present. The gift of the Crest Collection remains the anchor of the Smart Museum's collection of Western European art. It is now presented in a gallery aptly named after Edward and Inge Maser, and you can see that there. Um, some Cress objects are on near permanent display, such as the Cambiaso altarpiece of Madonna and Child, in conjunction with the, Ornesi, um, with the Farnese reliquary, which you see down here. Um, in what Anne Leonard, the collection's curator, calls our counter-reformation display. Um, over time, the space of the gallery has been divided up into much smaller units, accommodating the ever-growing collection of artworks to complement the existing collection. In 2013, the Smart acquired a masterful neoclassical painting by Henri Regnault, Socrates tearing away Alcibiades from the embrace of sensuality from 1785. In a thematic display on male pursuit in myth and literature, Anne Leonard has paired the Regnault with Checo Bravo's Angelica and Ruggiero, as well as the two Apollo and Daphne panels, all three from the Cress gift. The Cress objects also play a role in the conception of special exhibitions on Western European art that the Smart routinely puts on. Here you see Checo Bravo's painting in a show called The Tragic Muse, Art and Emotion, 17 to 1900. And indeed, the Crest Foundation continues as an important benefactor to the Smart Museum with support for many of its exhibitions and their tenant publications, such as Tragic Muse of 2011, or the upcoming show Classicisms, which I invite you to uh, attend in the spring of 2017. Lastly, I want to emphasize that of the 21 Crest gifts, eight are currently on view, a number which will increase to nine, with five works replaced when the museum does its full-scale yearly installation later this summer. It is in particular the combination of painting with sculpture and decorative arts that has made this gift a valuable resource over time. In conclusion, I want to remind the audience of where we started off. 
A reluctance on the part of the university to build a museum on campus. It was not until a more thorough art history took root, the academic and professionalized kind introduced by German emigre art historians, that a rethinking took place. Having a university art museum with a collection to study was a crucial part of that development. Later on, we learned that the personal relationship between Edward Mazur and Franklin Murphy played an important role in the coming about of the Crest Gift as Mazur was working toward obtaining artworks from the Crest Collection for the University of Chicago as early as 1962, when he had just begun his tenure there. This is a testament to Mazur's and the Crest Foundation's significant role in promoting the idea and practice of an object-based art history. Their efforts paid off and continue to do so. The Smart Museum today is one of Chicago's leading cultural institutions and an important university art museum. Thank you. This has been the National Gallery of Art podcast. Thank you.